Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast, formerly known as the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the CEO of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives and artists working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right. Tim, I have Tim Simpson here with me. Thank you so much for joining me. No problem. It's a pleasure. Why don't we start, Tim, because um, there's, there's several things that you do, uh, and I've got a couple, several people here live with me, environment artists. Um, start with what you do now. Awesome. Sure. Uh, so I am currently a senior lighting artist at uh, WB, uh, so Warner Brothers uh, Montreal. Mm -hmm. um, but over the course of my career, I've been a uh, environment artist and a lighting artist kind of bounced around in that general role and uh, I decided recently to so I recently I was uh, working at a company called Tuke um, but I kind of decided to take my own advice and focus on what I really enjoy doing which is uh, lighting so I enjoy making environments but I always enjoyed lighting the most so I decided to eat my own dog food and uh, go all in on my lighting skill set um, <laughs> because I mean I always I always tell people you gotta you know focus on what you actually enjoy doing the most because uh, you're gonna be doing it 40 hours a week so uh, it would be kind of you know not good if I didn't take my own advice. So what is an environment artist? Because that still confuses me even though. I run a school. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it, it, yeah, the role. I mean, it, it is kind of confusing because the role it really differs across uh, a variety of like studios, right? Um, yeah, so during exactly. during my during my time at um, Ubisoft, I would be what they would call a level artist. Uh, mm -hmm. So some studios usually, when I see the words level artist or world builder, uh, you're going to be basically constructing environments. Um, usually, ninety percent of the time, using an asset library. Uh, of stuff that's being outsourced or created by a modeling team. So you're more building yeah. the overall world. Right. And anytime I see a studio listing a job as an environment artist, I usually assume that I'm, I would be doing like a bit of like modeling, uh, maybe some texturing and more of like uh, a slightly broader skill set. Um, so that's basically what our job is to do though, is really to fuse the art and design, um, because we'll, a lot of the times we'll be working over a gray block that level designers have already created, because it's their job to make the game fun to play, and it's our job to basically interpret that in a way that uh, looks visually appealing to players. So when they're you know running around a city, it feels like a city and not just a collection of cubes that actually feel good for gameplay. And by our job, are you referring to lighting artists or environment artists? Uh, environment artist. So I, I consider myself both. Um, and then uh, as, a, as a lighting artist, uh, it's you're basically taking those environments and all those 3D models and doing your, you know, to the best of your ability to make them look as good as possible. So I always joke that it's my job to make other people's awesome art look as good as possible uh, as, mm -hmm. the, as the end result, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, what do you like about lighting? Uh, for me, it's one of the things is um, it usually has the biggest impact on the overall final visual image that's on the screen. Uh, I always I always say that no one's ever really going to see your wireframe as a, as someone who's playing a video game totally. usually. Yeah. Um, so it's too. exactly, and it it kind of really even takes that art and design and uh, expands on that further because a lot of the times a really good lighting artist will be able to lead the player through environments or communicate you know mood and stuff like that without like bashing it over the the player's head so 
Um, some of the best examples I've seen of that are, you know, games like uh, Uncharted or The Last of Us. They they have a really subtle lighting style, but you always know where you're going, um, mm-hmm. and it still feels realistic without being like, oh, here's a you know a drastically brighter light or something like that to snag your attention. Sometimes you do do things like that, but it's a really organic blend of, of presenting the environments, but still leading the player through the the path that the designer wants them to go through. Got it. What got you into this? Um, basically, I, I learned a little bit of 3D in, in high school. I had the mm-hmm. opportunity to pick up 3D Studio Max and start learning that in like grade nine. And uh, there was a bunch of people in my high school that after they graduated were actually getting hired at uh, EA Vancouver out in Burnaby right out of high school because they knew how to model cars and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't a fan of the idea of going to college or university. And so I saw this as like, wow, if I can get good enough at this, I don't have to spend a bunch of money to go to university and a bunch of extra years uh, like stuck in a classroom learning about subjects that I'm not super passionate about just because for a lot of people, that's like the default path, right? Uh, so I saw that because it's kind of an opportunity and I really liked playing video games. And I enjoyed like CG and movies like, you know, Jurassic Park and Star Wars and stuff like that. So I was always interested in the digital art scene. Mm -hmm. Um, So I basically took that idea and I was like, all right, I'm going to push myself and see if I can get myself uh, into the industry without actually having to go to, you know, a post-secondary institution and spend four four years of my life getting a degree. And uh, yeah, so that's basically how I got into it. And I just just started working on environments um, and learning you know, 3D Studio Max and and uh, Photoshop and stuff like that, and just gradually started building my skills out over a period of about six years before I got into the industry. Got it. And you teach too, or sort of? Uh, sort of. Um, I like I have a YouTube channel called Polygon mm-hmm. Academy, and um, I basically started that as a side hustle with the intention to one day, you know, turn it into a, an actual hopefully profitable business. But I I always enjoyed the teaching side of things as well um, because being, I I, I say self-taught in air quotes because I mean, I don't think anyone is truly self-taught, but like finding online resources and stuff like that, uh, back in the day for me, it was really scarce. um, And I always had a bunch of unanswered questions and it was always like pulling teeth to, you know, find the right information, the right workflows, stuff like that. So I decided, I mean, if I can, now that I've been in the industry for about 12 years, if I can kind of like, reach back and help others get to, you know, to their goals of breaking into the industry or improving as an artist, it's, it's only going to be win-win, right? Like, so in, in my spare time, I also kind of, you know, consume a lot of entrepreneurial content like Gary Vee and all that stuff. And they're always talking about, you know, your personal brand is pretty much the go-to thing these days. Uh, so I figured I might as well fuse the entrepreneurial side of things with uh, the artistic side of things. And so far people have been digging the content I put out because I really want to focus on stuff that is, not really spoken about like I have art tutorials but I also have content that is revolves around the ins and outs of the industry my thoughts mm-hmm. on certain things and I try and do Q&As and stuff like that just to give people access to somebody actually in the industry um, to get that one-on-one communication with is, is a really good opportunity that I wish I had when I was learning yeah um, I, I think you've got like you've got some lighting presets out of your gum road yeah um, I think there I, I might be wrong here but you there was uh, some content on trim sheets or something of that nature, or am I wrong? Yeah, exactly. I, I did a YouTube. Actually, that's what the, the four videos that I'm editing right now are on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically, I put out a, a long video that was an overview of why you should use trim sheets and kind of the, kind of the whole process of using them to create various assets. Yeah. But a lot of people had questions about, oh, how did you actually create that trim texture? So I, 
I just broke out a uh, it into a four part series that I'm probably going to put out maybe I think tomorrow if I can finish editing up tonight. I'm just mm -hmm. going to put out all all four videos and it goes from like um, you know planning your trim sheet, sculpting it in ZBrush, uh, baking and texturing it in Painter, and then a bunch of UV tips and tricks. So it should hopefully cover everybody's questions on that subject. Um, so I, I put out the tutorial series and then I also put the example assets up on my Gumroad for like five bucks. And a lot of people have been like downloading those and being able to actually open the models in their own 3D software and play around with the UVs and that trim texture that I like basically uh, gave in that pack. Mm -hmm. They were like, oh, all of a sudden it clicks. All these, the ways that your model is unwrapped into these strips, you can slide them around and quickly texture things. They're like, oh, now it totally makes sense. Um, so yeah, that's basically what I've put out uh, along with a bunch of industry advice. But the tutorials by far um, are the get the most views and uh, people seem to, to like them the most, even though I think some of my mindset videos are probably more important in the long run just for mm -hmm. people's overall you know, mental health and sanity when trying to get into the industry. But uh, the tutorials, people seem to like the, the way that I teach the content, which has been really cool seeing that reception. Seeing as I, I'm pretty introverted and when I first started the channel, I was like, you know, super nervous and uh, I'm like, oh man, I'm putting myself out there on camera. But uh, everyone's been super receptive to it and it's only led me to wanting to create more content for everyone. So you're not one of those people that when you, you know, go to a, a bar, you go say hi to people and talk and... Uh, depending how much booze I've had. <laughs> it, no, it, it depends. I mean, it's, I would say I, I am introverted. And even now, like, even now after putting out, like, I don't know, 10, 15 videos, it's still, mm -hmm. if I, it's been a while, like, I just went on vacation and stuff. Firing up the camera to get back on camera and do these uh, new set of tutorials is kind of like, you know, you got to grease the rusty wheel a bit. Um, but I find once you, you do it, it's more like a muscle, right? The more you use yeah. it, the more comfortable you become. So, I mean... Anytime I go to a networking event, yeah, at the start of the evening, it's probably like I try and go with a friend. And that's a, a big piece of advice I give students is like try and go with a fellow student to like something like GDC or you know, E3 if you want. Because at least mm -hmm. then you have someone you're comfortable interacting with. And then as, as either the booze flows or you kind of gain that social momentum talking to other people throughout the night, it becomes easier and easier. Uh, but for me, it's, it's not my natural inclination to uh, get on, on camera and put myself on video now for sure. Yeah, mine neither. And um, I just had an interview with Mark Burnett, and it was the same kind of thing. It's like we can do it, we can do the stuff, but it's like there's a separate part that takes over. And, yeah, for, for me, it was actually yeah. like putting the mission of helping people above my own discomfort, yeah. being like, well, I want to build my personal brand. So this is just how media works <laughs> in 2019 and 20. Like, video is the go to format. So, like, mm -hmm. I have to get over myself and do it. Plus, I realized I had final edit, which is like, I don't really do a lot of live streams and stuff like that. So I just edit my videos. I'm like, if I screw up, I'll just edit that out. And then I was like, oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. And if I don't like the video, I won't put it out. So it's that mental shift really helped me. That's great. So how has this impacted your career? That's one of the things that I think's um, kind of been on my mind lately is looking to see how have these things, because as you said, you know, it's started as a side hustle. And as you did it, you know, I'm sure you probably experienced it. It's a lot of work. There's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. And probably more than you might have anticipated. But there's also a lot of reward as well. Exactly. Exactly. Um, um, but 
you know, the road to turning it into a side hustle can be pretty uh, steep or, you know, it could be a little bit of money here and there, but, it, you know, it still can be steep. Um, the question I got though is how has it impacted the career and you searching for jobs? Because one of the things that I tell my students is that uh, th this kind of education marketing where you are teaching and in teaching marketing yourself is, is a powerful tool, but Absolutely. has it helped you get jobs or no? Yeah, uh, totally. Um, so basically, when I uh, when I first started my art station challenge, the day that I ordered the camera, uh, I had a, I was actually on sabbatical for about a year. I was just mm -hmm. taking some time off. Um, the day that I ordered, I just had literally clicked order on the camera because I was like, oh, I'm gonna do. I'm you know, I'm not working. I'm gonna vlog this whole art station series. Uh, I'm gonna have all the time in the world to do it. It's gonna be awesome. So I clicked order on the camera. Literally half an hour later, my friend Lincoln called me and said. Hey, I'm working at Tuke. Uh, we actually need someone to come in for uh, as a, like an environment slash lighting artist for a while. Uh, would you be interested? And I was like, oh, it's, it sounds fun. <laughs> so I signed up for that the exact same day. So um, balancing the two, yeah, it was a little tough. But as soon as I started putting out content, uh, a lot of people, because of just people were sharing it around the industry. So a lot of people in the industry saw it. And because yeah. I was on like, say, a, a three-month contract at Tuke, by the time that contract was coming to an end, uh, I had multiple job offers on the table just simply because people were approaching me after seeing the content. Um, people were starting to know my name. So, and even even today, like just because I'm constantly trying to you know drip content out there, more and more people see it. So more and more people go and check out your portfolio. And if they're looking to hire, they're like, oh wow, this person can do environments and lighting, and they'll send you feeler emails, right? So. Mm -hmm. At this point in my career, I would say I probably won't have to go searching for a job unless, you know, something goes horrendously wrong at this point, mm -hmm. um, which, which is nice. And I try and say that as humbly as possible because, I mean, it's just attention arbitrage pretty much, right? The more attention you have on your portfolio, once you get to a certain skill level, people are just going to naturally start sending you job offers, uh, which is why I even say to students, like, if even if you're just starting out, uh, start vlogging and documenting all of your process and work in either written or video format. Because um, even if you think, oh, I'm not industry quality, why would people watch this? Uh, I would totally be interested if someone was like, I want a job at not and do updates. I was like, that would be super interesting. And that person would be on my radar from that day forward. So when they did hit that skill level, it would be like, they're clearly passionate. Let's reach out. Uh, we're hiring. Let's give this person a job. It's just having people be aware of you and what you're doing. And and media is now the best way to do that. I think that's one of the big issues uh, a lot of artists face is giving themselves permission to do that. And um, so that, I mean, that sounds cool. And I 100% agree with you. You know, you have to get yourself out there. But as artists, we live in this kind of, we live in the, we live this dichotomy where you have to get attention, but, and, I mean, if you see the stuff on YouTube, it's not really like it's not craft centered, you know, cat videos are still the, you know, oh, the leader. Absolutely. So, yeah. but as an artist, you're judged on the quality of your work. And so we get very focused on whether or not we're good enough. And it's that yeah. phrase right there that kind of dominates our life. It drives us, it makes us better, but it also holds us back. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's definitely intimidating to throw your work up. Um, but I mean, for me, the, my, my whole mindset of is like, what's the other option just to, to sit there and never get the job of my dreams? Like, you're going to have to put your work out there at some point. And again, that's like a muscle too, right? The more you do it, the more 
uh, impervious you kind of become to like, if someone leaves a jackass comment on your work, like, oh, this sucks. Yeah, the first time that happens, it's gonna hurt, and you're gonna you're probably gonna sit there and rage and be like, I'm gonna show this person, I'm gonna go through all their social media profiles, uh, and then uh, like for me, when I first put out like my first video, even yeah. though I had been in the industry for a while, I was like, oh, I I just know at some point it's gonna be like, what is this bald ginger? Who does he think he is? Like, oh, that's that's way too many polygons, right? And I, I have seen some comment, not about the ball ginger thing, but like some, some people like armchair tech directors that are like, well, in my experience, that's way too, mon too many polygons. I'm just like, eh. The first one, I was like, who is this person? The second, third time that happened, I was just like, eh, I, I, don't, I don't care. I'm literally, I can devote my time and energy into being offended and getting mad, or I could just take that energy and make more content because I know my intentions are uh, a lot better, even if it's not perfect. Um, and it's to me, intent is everything, right? And if I see that someone's super passionate, but they're not quite there skill-wise, I, I always try and be like, oh man, this is, it clearly shows improvement over your last project. Like, keep going, keep going. That's one of the things I always tell people on Twitter and Instagram, like, oh man, just keep going, keep going. Uh, but yeah, getting over that fear of putting out your work there, it of your work out there, it's, it's intimidating at first, but the more you do it, uh, the less you kind of give a shit about the 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 trolls and the negative uh, feedback. And a lot of the times, sometimes there is good feedback you'll get by putting your work out there. And yeah, it does suck to have someone be like, it's pretty good, but I think if you fix these five things, uh, your work would improve. And I know for me, that's what helped get me to that industry level uh, of quality because I would just post my work on sites like Polycount and CG Chat back in the day when it still existed and ask for feedback. And yeah, you're gonna get torn apart, but dropping that ego and being like, how can I improve this? And you know, you're gonna get advice and feedback from people in the industry and they know what they're doing and because they've all made the same mistakes. So they know, you know, they can tell you. And sometimes maybe you, you apply the feedback, maybe you don't depending, because everyone's like, oh, well it's intended to be like that. A lot of the time I think that can be an excuse. Like if say you're a character artist and the anatomy is not, on point, someone's gonna call you out on it, but it's like, oh no, I just wanted it to be stylized kind of. And it's like, nah, did you? And I mean, it's that's it's always <laughs> the first first line of defense, right? Is is the ego being like, but I intended it that way. But for me, if you can post your work and then get feedback and objectively step back and be like, what can I, of these five points, what can the two or three that I can really take to heart? And uh, yeah, it's, it's more work. No one likes to be told, go back and fix it. But I mean, at the end of the day, when you're working in a studio, your art director comes and sits down next to you and is like, eh, fix these three or four things in this environment. And you're like, ah, oh, I thought I was done with it. I want to move on to something new. I guess it's another three weeks on this level. <laughs> like, and that's that's just reality, right? And the, the quicker you can get yourself in the groove of working like in the reality of, of applying feedback uh, and not just being told your work is amazing every single time and getting all those nice ass pats, uh, that's probably going to, in the long term, really benefit you as an artist, uh, as opposed to just going for the cozy, oh, wow, this is so great. This is so great. I love your art. I, that, it does feel good, but that, it's, that's like to me, that's like almost like junk food, right? It's just easy to sit there in a blanket on your couch consuming, but you're not going to ever achieve anything without uh, getting some of the, I call it being bashed upon the hard, harsh rocks of reality. And every now and then, it's actually good to embrace that. So if we're if they're if we're an aspiring environment artist, and let's just be generic about it, because we'll you know say somebody's coming from some college or, or something where they're just yeah. like hey, you know environment art program, you know yeah. um, later on they'll learn its levels, its world building, its props, its all of that. Um, but if 
if they're an environment artist, they want a job as an environment artist and they're like, I'll do realism, but I'll take a job anywhere. Um, what are the biggest mistakes that you've seen people make so far? Uh, the most common one I usually see is the the jack of all trades, master of master of none. Um, and it's and that's kind of your statement right there was like, I'll take a job anywhere. And I, I think I, I see this posted on forums all the time. People asking like, well, I, I started doing environments, but or I started doing characters, but I know there's a lot more opportunity for environments. Should mm -hmm. I switch to environments to get a job? And and I'm like, it's clear to me based on all of the like the five things you have on your art station, you want to be a character artist, like keep going with that because it's a completely different skill set and you know getting distracted and trying to chase a job uh is probably the the quickest way to lose and not develop an advanced skill set that will actually get you hired so i say instead of chasing a job and chasing money chase mastery in what you enjoy uh, because if you can get the skill set that you actually really enjoy doing to a really high level you're going to get hired a lot faster and by focusing your time and energy on like, uh, exactly. I, I want to, let's say someone's like, oh, I want to um, work on realistic games. But, oh, there's a, a lot of mobile studios that could do stylized work around me that, uh, you know, I could get a job there quicker. You're going to be miserable if you actually don't enjoy doing stylized work. Uh, so the, the one of the biggest things I always see is a portfolio that's like one substance shader ball, a prop, uh, some like life drawing and like maybe one or two small environments or something like that. Uh, and I just look at that portfolio and I'm like, I have no idea what to hire this person for. And none of these are at a high enough level that uh, I would want to hire them in the first place. So that sounds brutal because um, a lot of students, that is their port their first portfolio, right? It's, they, it they put the first things that they've learned up as their portfolio. And that's that's totally cool. Uh, but as you advance your skill set, audit that old stuff out of your portfolio. So it's more of a consistent, like a coherent, consistent message of exactly what you do and what you're passionate about. Um, so if if I'm looking to hire for an environment art position, I open your portfolio. It should bash me over the head like a baseball bat that this person's all about environments. Uh, and if you're applying to a studio, the more work you have in their style, that's like a shows that you could clearly do the day to day work. Uh, the better chance you'll have of, of actually getting into that studio. Because, I mean, if you look at my portfolio, it's all, like, photorealistic uh, for the most part, um, a little bit of sci-fi here and there. I wouldn't go applying to, to Blizzard and be like, why aren't I getting a job on the Overwatch team? I don't have any, I don't have any stylized artwork in my portfolio. Like, it just mm -hmm. it wouldn't make sense, right? Like, I would have probably a, a better chance uh, if you look at, oh, this guy's worked on Watch Dogs, this guy's worked on... Uh, Space Marine, okay, maybe I could go work on Gears of War or uh, like Grand Theft Auto or something like that. You know what I mean? It's it's just the relevance is so important. Uh, do, do you think that one model, one project can get you a job or do we need to have multiple projects? Uh, I would say as as a macro, you should have multiple projects. But in my experience uh, in the micro, it will be one project that gets you the most attention that gets you the job right so say you have a portfolio of four or five different little environments you have you've built over the last few years your new environment that you post is probably going to be the one that gets you all the attention that will get recruiters hitting you up because it's probably going to be the best quality so in that sense it's you're always like i like to say one project away from your dream job because mm -hmm. if you put out a really high quality project 
uh, that's going to be great. But people will also look at all of the rest of your work too, right? A lot of the times, I would say just having one project in your portfolio, it isn't going to give people enough context. Um, like, is this just a one-off? Like, how long did it take them to do this? If they only have one project and they've been in school for three years, like, did this take them three years to do? So I would say on a minimum, I would probably want to see three or four like really good strong pieces but you don't need like 10 pieces in your portfolio um like if you look at my portfolio yeah there's uh i don't know like 10 or so different things but i've been working in the industry for 12 years <laughs> and even some of this older work i should probably audit out like if i was going on an extreme job hunt i would probably audit out my socom stuff and uh those lighting paint overs i have down at the bottom but for me i leave that up as I'm building my personal brand, so it helps when students can see the kind of the progression of where I've come from. So that's why I leave up some of my older work. But if I was like really wanting to get a job at like a you know a super high-end studio, like uh, I don't know Naughty Dog or Sony Santa Monica or something like that, I would audit that old stuff out of there and be like, for the next two weeks while I'm applying, I pruned my portfolio down to the the, the best work that I have. Um, but yeah, so long story short, yeah. you, you definitely need a few pieces to show that you can consistently, uh, you know, swing and, and hit that uh, that quality bar. Um, there's a question in the community. What about shader balls, substance balls? They're good. They get a lot of likes on ArtStation. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I definitely like seeing them. And if you want to build environments, yeah, being really good in substance, it's like any skill that you can show that you've gotten to a high level of it's just like another like charisma point to your your character if this is an rpg right um so if your materials are really good yeah that that's awesome uh but if it's like a mishmash like i said if it's like the first brick texture you made in substance that's not really gonna wow most people because everyone's done the brick texture tutorial right uh but if you've developed that skill set over a long period of time yeah put them in your portfolio but a lot of the time studios have dedicated materials artists nowadays so if you want to apply as a level artist at Ubisoft, you're not going to be making materials. So there's no point in having it in your portfolio, right? Um, if, but any anything, like I said, anything that's developed to a high level, if they're really good, it's not going to harm you. But if it's clear that it's the first time you did it, mm, I, I would ax it. Um, but it. if you want to be a, if you want to be a materials artist, like a dedicated texture artist, and make textures and substance all day, like yeah. there's some amazing portfolios out there, right? like Daniel Tiger, Josh Lynch. Those guys, you look at their their entire portfolio is Shader Ball Madness, and it's it's awesome. But they they're demonstrating that they've mastered that skill set because that's what they do on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Got it. It, I think this is um, what we're really getting to. You said earlier, which is uh, demonstrate an advanced skill set that's going to make you more likely to get a job. Whereas you also said chasing mastery. And yeah. um, one of the ways that I like to think about this is that uh, there's a certain threshold. You know, it's almost like the uncanny valley. It's like in this industry, you know, there's a there's a point at which like it doesn't matter how much, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, your networking necessarily. It's just there's this threshold where your work is mm, and then your work is great. Let's get exactly. you in. Let's yeah. bring you. You're ready. Right. And, and this and this mm phase is like, you know, it, it's a big it's a big phase. So yeah, the question... it's, it's like for me, it was six years. <laughs> I, I always tell, I try and say that as much as possible because yeah. I find that right now, it, nowadays is the, the age of entitlement and the age of like instant gratification, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's like I, people just need that context. And I try, so that's why I try and say it as much. Yeah, it took me six years from the day I opened 3DS Max from the first time till I got my first junior artist job. 
And five of those years, uh, I was, I was, I would say developing my skills. And then that last year, uh, I, I had felt like confident enough in my skills to really start creating new portfolio work and throwing out the old stuff. And then I was, you know, that tip, exactly. You said that tipping point. Yeah. What, what I, I I'm kind of, I like to, I like to be a student of what defines the edge of that tipping point. And so one of the things we do in the boot camps, we talk about uh, triggers. And in our case, we focus on hiring triggers. And like what's what's going to tell somebody I'm a professional, what's going to tell them I'm an amateur, right? So in your view, let's take a look. Uh, I kind of want to dive into lighting. Like if you're looking at lighting, yeah. what tells you that somebody knows what they're doing and what tells you that they, you know, they're still in their mm phase? Uh, for me, like when it comes to lighting, um, a lot of it is, are they using their light to imply uh, maybe some gameplay? Um, is is the color palette kind of like, if you look at a lot of my images, I usually use like a two-tone color palette. I don't use like a Christmas light color palette. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, one of the, the signs of a uh, beginner lighting artist or, you know, someone who's lighting their first environments is they'll kind of just throw lights around uh, maybe a bunch of different colors and with no real intention of where to guide the eye and stuff like that mm -hmm. um, because lighting really drives composition so if you look at those two images on screen right now uh, your eye instantly goes on the top one to that that center alleyway further down so you're like I want to travel further down that alleyway because there's that's one of the brightest parts of the screen and then in the image below oh hey there's a bright doorway there like clearly that's somewhere you can go and then the other, the orange adds like an accent color to just add some, you know, spice to the environment. But uh, by keeping a restrained, it's almost like the more restraint you have, uh, the better your lighting will usually look. Uh, instead of placing a million lights, I try and place as few lights as possible while still communicating those key concepts. Um, what does what is as few lights as possible mean? Because I, I find when I talk to environment artists, it doesn't mean three, it means more. Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of light sources. Mm -hmm. So like I like to have one strong key light usually, uh, one or two strong like key sources of light and then maybe just a few different uh, sources of fill light. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times when I look at like say beginner sci-fi hallways, they have like a million little tiny point lights everywhere and like right. a million little light sources but no clearly defined key light. Um, something, so something at like the end of the hallway, like shining down or, you know, maybe a window with a light coming in, something like that. They're like, oh, it's a sci-fi space station. There would just be like little maintenance lights everywhere. And that's how I'm, I'm going to add little, like hundreds of little point lights inside of Unreal. And it looks really spotty. And there's like, there's no thought of how is the, the composition being affected or uh, more importantly, how is the mood and storytelling being affected? And how am I guiding the viewer through that image? That's something I hear a, a lot from artists is is the idea of story. Like we had Christopher Radsby in, and he was talking about how important story is and and being involved in that. Because you know you're an environment artist, you're going to be um, you're creating this world that people are walking around and and gameplay is a big part of what you do, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, how what are some of the exercises or some of the ways to think about this that you might give students? Because you know they're at the beginning, they don't quite get gameplay yet you know how, how can i think about story you know or even yet with this image is hong kong alley like how are you thinking about story here so f for me like i was really inspired by uh like uh i think it was um uh, what's his name uh, oh God, liam uh, liam wong's photography mm -hmm. and uh i just watched john wick so i wanted 
for me, this was a study in, in not really necessarily story, but mood, uh, how I want the person to feel when they watch this or look at this image. And I wanted it to feel like, you know, kind of grimy and uh, really like artificially lit with these neon lights and just like that uncomfortable mood. Um, and so a lot of the times, yeah, storytelling is great, like how you arrange your props and, you know, you can make up little stories and stuff like that. But I really, the, the story is just a means of making people feel something, right? So a lot of the times I'll, I'll look at the color pal palette of something and I'm like, how does this make me feel? Like, is this uh, like a lot of, you know, say horror movies, they have a really desaturated, high contrast kind of image on the screen um, because they want to make you feel uncomfortable or it's often color graded in a really sickly color palette that just makes you feel uneasy, right? Versus like looking at a, uh, a Pixar movie. Those guys are masters of color as well. Pixar is like how they use color and light to make you feel something. Um, so in, in that case, if you look at uh, a movie like Up or something like that, the color palette is crazy intense, but they're always making you feel like either, you know, really sad in the beginning or uh, really like a sense of adventure by using bright colors and stuff like that. So uh, for me, color and, and light intensity and just the overall feeling of an image um, is just as important as, oh, this little... Uh, collection of pots on the table it was a, a mage that was working here like a lot of the times that is especially during gameplay you, you can imply a lot of stuff but a lot of people go overboard being like oh the little scratches on this table when he moved his ink quill i'm like i've never seen that like just jumble a bunch of like potions and stuff okay it's a, a mage's workshop right so it's balancing that for me mm. um, but the overall image is like how does it make me feel when i look at it emotionally got it um there's a question alberto's asking about um, I mean, I, I know some of the answer to this, but uh, I'm, I'm going to just take his words for it and then we'll go from there. Uh, yeah, when you sure. block out an environment, I see you create a base model of the main elements. I was wondering, um, you block out the entire environment with those elements and then you create the real assets for it. If so, you basically have to create the scene again and just replace those basic assets. And uh, and so I see this question in a couple of different ways. One is just the process of you know white boxing or gray boxing your environment. Yeah. And then and then two, I think the other thing that kind of uh, especially since we're looking at the scene, is you know where do students have permission to buy assets and and include as outside assets, and you know where is it that they they should really just be modeling everything themselves? Because I find students tend to have a you know, like an Alaska mentality, you know, I'm going to make ever, I'm going to build my log cabin <laughs> yeah, okay, myself. Definitely. Awesome. Okay. Let's run with this. So uh, yeah, it's just a quick clarification. I didn't actually make this uh, Hong Kong alleyway scene. I, I bought it on the marketplace and did a relighting on it because mm -hmm. it was strictly for me an exercise in improving my lighting skills. Um, but to go back to the first part, when I block out an entire environment, uh, yeah, I modeled the placeholder pieces in max and then I make sure I keep the pivots the same and the names the same. So I just, once I've created the final art asset to say replace like a modular wall piece, I just uh, in Max basically overwrite the existing gray blocks placeholder, re-export it and re-import it into Unreal. And if I've done things correctly because the pivots are the same and the names are the same, uh, it just, it like bloop, updates in place in the world. Uh, I don't have to replace it or anything like that. So that makes your life easy. If you you know set up your pivots on a grid and stuff like that, it's it's going to make just swapping your assets. Even if you come bring it in with a different name, uh, but the pivots are the same, you can just right click and swap and stuff like that. So using keeping your pivots and naming conventions uh, and preparing that 
by planning for it in the beginning is a great way to save a lot of time because then you don't have to, like you said, recreate your entire scene. Uh, and onto the bigger thing of using asset packs and stuff like that. So um, if, for example, you want to be a level artist, I see no issue in combining you know, asset packs you've bought from marketplaces and stuff like that because your day-to-day -day duties aren't going to be modeling. If you know the exact studio you want to work at, uh, and you've done your research and okay, a level artist, you can contact a level artist that works at that studio. Do you guys model? Nope. Okay, cool. You can compose scenes. And as long as you say in the description, like this scene was created with marketplace assets, blah, blah, blah. And you don't try and front like you've done it all by yourself. Uh, that's fine. Like I would totally hire someone because the level art skill set is less about, you know, modeling tiny details and more about composition, layout, uh, being able to compose a nice scene in terms of balance of details. Uh, so in that case, if that's the skill set you want to demonstrate, go ahead and use marketplace assets. Like there's a ton of great content um, that Epic has put out uh, for free that you can use to build scenes. And I mean, level designers can do that too, right? If you want to be a level designer, you can either use gray blocks or you can actually just use marketplace assets and be like, here, I can clearly create convincing spaces that would work in a gameplay perspective and uh, focus more on communicating the exact gameplay that would happen in that space if you want to be on the more the design side of things. So I think it's it's totally fine. Like more and more you're seeing people using mega scans in their personal work because at a certain point, sitting down and like creating a uh, a rock texture or you know uh, a rock model and doing like a, one of those million rock models that's on ArtStation uh, is a lot less uh, of a time trade off than if you want to be you know composing scenes and world building. Like, don't spend your time sculpting rocks because that all that stuff's going to usually get outsourced. Like props and stuff like that is usually outsourced nowadays. Um, so, if you if you want to work in house at a studio, I would say focus on the things that have a bigger impact on the overall game and player experience. So the gameplay and, and the player experience, which nowadays is level art, level design. Uh, but if you want to be, you know, a vehicle or weapon modeler. Don't don't go buying weapons on the on the marketplace and like kit bashing them together and being I'm done. Like show that you can fully create interesting weapons from scratch, right? So it's it's all about the re relevant skill set to the job that you want to do. Yeah, and I guess that's the tough part is is getting some clarity there. Um, when did you know you know that environment was your thing as opposed to props or anything like that? pretty much right off the bat um like when i sorry not right off the bat because when i first started learning 3d studio max i tried a bit of everything right like i tried modeling characters i tried modeling cars uh but as i did that process for the first like couple years in high school just basically learning the tools with different projects or whatever interested me uh i found myself going back more towards like creating maps for counter-strike and and I was always into like really interesting architectural, like anytime I would see some really cool shots in a movie or, you know, photos of architecture, I was always like, wow, this is super interesting. This, this is what gets me fired up. Um, so after a while, I decided to focus on that. So I always tell people, taste everything. Like you never know what you're into usually. Uh, some people do right away. They're like, I want to make monsters. That's the only thing I think about is making monsters. Uh, in that case, why would they waste their time learning environment stuff if it's not what they're passionate about? But I, I usually say taste everything because you, you never know right off the bat what you're going to be really into, but you'll usually, by tasting everything, you'll find one or two things that you love and you'll just naturally start doing those over and over again. And then you're like, okay, I guess, I guess I'm meant to be an environment artist. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if you want to be a, a freelance 3d artist, go ahead and like create some badass props. Cause like 
like I said, a lot of props and stuff nowadays get outsourced. That doesn't necessarily mean outsourced to China or India. I mean, that is where a lot of that happens. But there are, you know, outsourcing studios here in Montreal where people are making characters, props, weapons, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it just it just comes down to doing what you really enjoy doing. This is, and I think this is kind of one of the, um, I mean, at least for me, it's one of the core dilemmas I try to solve because it it's about doing what you enjoy doing. But at a certain point, it's also about, you know, look, I want to move out of my parents' house. <laughs> they kind of gave me <laughs> an, an ultimatum. How do I make this happen? Um, and I always tell people, you know, that, look, if, if, it, if your sole focus is a job, you, you need to look at programming because, you know, in programming, there's going to be like a million unmet jobs by, you know. Well, I mean, if your sole focus is money, like uh, yeah. go and become like a financial analyst or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like I live in Orange County. You, so, you can yeah. make a lot more money doing a, a lot different. Uh, I mean, even like a probably an electrician or a plumber or something like that. Right. Like it, it's <laughs> depending on the, the job market. Like, I, yeah. yeah, you can make a decent wage in games. But I mean, that's probably lower down my priority stack. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, if, if you if you're like, I absolutely need to get a job, I would reverse engineer. OK, what are the opportunities that I have presented to myself? I would use something like game dev map um, to look at the studios around you, look at yeah. the games that they're put, like putting out, find one that like really resonates with you and and uh, basically just try and show that you have the ability to create whatever they're working on. Um, like it, it, and then to be honest, like I see this a lot of the time people are like, but I'm in China and I'm in India or, uh, I'm in Brazil and I, I need to, to get a work visa to come to the States. And then, and yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's a, a, often a tough reality to, to deal with. Right. Uh, in which case, if you're in China or India, maybe look at and see, like use again, game dev map. There's a plenty of outsourcing studios, right? Look at their, because now most outsourcing studios have their portfolios on ArtStation. So that gives you an idea of the quality that they're putting out and the types of games that they work on. So you can kind of reverse engineer it, right? And be like, all right, I'm picking my target. Uh, this is clearly the content that the opportunities around me are requiring artists to make. How yeah. can I get good at making that as possible? Um, so it's, man, yeah, it's just all about reverse engineering and seeing how you can create opportunity for yourself by developing a highly relevant skill set uh, to the, the the studios that are either around you or you really want to work at, right? And yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it does suck that some people will have to get a degree to get a work visa, but I mean, those are the rules set up by those countries, right? For me, I'm always about like, know the rules of the matrix and play within it as best you can. Because um, mm -hmm. I mean, you can sit there pouting all day and be like, I don't want to go to school. I don't want to get a degree. I just want to teach myself. But I also want to work in the States. But I'm like located in some country where uh, in order to come to the States, they need a work visa. But I'm, I'm just I just want to get really good and they'll be able to bring me aboard. And while the studio might really want to bring you aboard, the, the government's going to be like, no, <laughs> these are our rules. So I mean, just deal with the, the harshness of reality in the best way you can and uh, figure out a way to reverse engineer and create an opportunity for yourself. Hmm, I like that. Yeah, that's a big part of what, um, that's actually been a big part of my life the last uh, three years is is focusing on the reverse engineer um, process, you know, know where you want to go. So one of the things we tell people is know what studio you want to work at, because otherwise you're, yeah. you know, you have no clue. You have to have a North Star. Yeah, exactly. Instead of hunting with like a shotgun, hunt with a sniper rifle. Like yeah. that's that that comes down to the jack of all trades, master of run, that, like master of none. That's like blasting away into the sky with a shotgun, hoping a bird will fall at your feet versus like, you know, yeah, maybe taking more time to get that defined 
skill set, but that's like, you know, setting up your blind, along comes a deer, you have a rifle, boom, this like one shot, bam, it, it just clearly makes sense, right? I love that. Yeah, it's perfect. And I think in this industry, that's one of the most important messages that, you know, I spend my time trying to tell people is you have to focus because this industry doesn't care until they care until you exactly with them, you know, and, and you, cause you know, it's like, you know, we're dealing with artists, artists and all of us, like I myself include, like I oil paint, I do all these things. And, you know, I have my own ideas of what good is and, and whatnot, but this industry doesn't like these studios, they don't care what my idea of good is, you know, exactly. it's a business relationship, right? Like they, yeah. they have a position they need to fill. There's requirements for that position. Uh, mm -hmm. And they have a clear set of like expectations um, based on their needs for the project. Okay, okay, we need uh, two environment artists. We're building an open world game. Blah 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 blah. Stuff like that, right? So it's up. It's on you to demonstrate that you can clearly do the job of an environment artist or a character artist, uh, and just show that you're as relevant as possible to what they're looking to fill that position with. And I mean, they're going to get a ton of applicants, and most of them aren't going to be relevant because it's going to be, you know. Uh, generalists or stuff like that applying, but they're literally like, we are hiring an environment artist. So it doesn't matter if you have a wide range of stuff in your portfolio, some characters, they're like, that is totally irrelevant to this job that we're looking to pay you to do. Mm -hmm. um, so they want to see you the skills that they're going to specifically pay you to do be at a high level. Uh, but to also to kind of jump back onto that, I want to move out of my parents' basement. How do I get money coming in? Nowadays with the with the internet, like there's a whole subculture of people making money on Gumroad, uh, the Unreal Marketplace. So say you are in a country where you really need a visa to come work in the United States. Maybe you could actually, instead of going and working for a studio, you could create some super useful asset packs, put them on the Unreal Marketplace, learn uh, digital marketing. So like mm. running Facebook ads, stuff like that. And you mm. could probably make a decent income doing that, right? So it's thinking outside the box. It's like, how can I use the skills that I've built to generate an income. So for me, yeah, I'm building educational content, but if I wanted to also create another stream of income, I would probably look what big games are coming up. Okay, Cyberpunk. So probably Cyberpunk themed asset packs are gonna be really popular on the Unreal Marketplace and Unity Marketplace in the next yes. 24 months because everyone's gonna sit down and play Cyberpunk and be like, I wanna make an indie Cyberpunk game. So I'm thinking like that, it's like think outside the box, right? See where the market trends are going and be like, there's gonna be a bunch of people hungry for uh, battle Royale assets or cosmetic assets. I'm going to create a bunch of those and uh, see if I can create an income like that. So it's, again, your situation can, sometimes those pressures can force you to think outside the box and you can actually have happy accidents happen along the way. I love that. And sounds to me like to you, uh, it's important for artists to, to be entrepreneurial. Uh, I, I absolutely, I think so. I mean, everyone has their own level of like, I would say a business blend and an art blend, right? Like some mm -hmm. people are a hundred percent artists. They're like, I'm a purist, like taking money from my art. Like, I, although nowadays <laughs> you're hard to find people like that, but like some people are just like, I just want to make art, uh, get paid for this. And some people are like, I want to make a big business that's art related, right? So some people are a different blend of entrepreneur and artist. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but nowadays I think the more you can kind of steal ideas from both like i think entrepreneurs can you know uh actually benefit from either hiring artists or learning art skills themselves to make more aesthetically pleasing ads and media and stuff like that right so it's 
if if you're an artist and then you can learn a little bit about like uh, I don't know um, content marketing or like you know how to do things like SEO on YouTube and stuff like that, so more people see your work, you're you're gonna, you're as a result, you will probably make more money in the long run. Hmm. Did you study somewhere or how did you get started? Because your 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 camera quality is great. You're great on camera. Your content. It was, it was all YouTube research. Like it yeah. was YouTube research and just watching what uh, not necessarily other people in my my niche, like what tutorials um, people were doing, but mm -hmm. just looking at my favorite YouTubers. So like uh, Peter McKinnon, Gary V. I'm just like just do what they're doing or take what things you like about their videos. So yeah, like uh, nice background music, like a good camera with a decent lens. Obviously, that's an investment. Um, but the, the better, higher quality I can make my content in comparison to the other people doing it in my niche, like the more I'll stand out, right? Um, yeah. And that was one of the reasons why I really decided to show my face because I found so many tutorials on YouTube are just like some echoey mic in a basement and it's like, okay, today we make car and uh, uh, where's the, the buttons to click this? And it's like an hour long video of someone kind of scrambling and rambling and like, no clear presentation of what they're doing or or they don't convey the information in a clear way that's easy to remember the workflow. Hmm. They just sit down and maybe just make something, but they can't explain why they're doing it. And for me, a lot of my videos, I find the most important part is more of like the mindset and the why behind the, I'm doing something versus like, here's the button, here's the chamfer button, here's the connect button. It's like, no, this is why you want to connect this edge loop. This is uh, why you would want to use a trim sheet, right? That's the super important part where because anyone can show you how to model like a car or a tire, but it's the why behind it of like, what this is why we do it in the game industry. It's super, super important. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I knew right off the bat, I would have to to, to show my face and that was gonna make my content more effective. Because I want, when I make a video, I want it to literally uh, put people at ease and feel like that we're hanging out and I'm just sitting there next to you, talking to you, showing you Max. Because I mean, that's yeah. all the men mentors I've had in the industry. It's like, oh, hey, can I sit down at your desk for a moment? I'll show you this thing. And so I wanted it to, to feel like that because, I mean, it makes it a lot easier uh, to connect with the person who's teaching and which probably makes it easier to retain the content. And it'll probably make people want to come back to my content more if they recognize me in thumbnails, all that stuff, all that kind of mindset of, again, a little bit of marketing, a little bit of soft skills, stuff like that. I, I want to talk about this work that's on the screen right now. But before we do that, I, um, I think if it might be worthwhile um, if you could tell me or talk to us about like that first time when you turned the camera on and like, did everything <laughs> go the way you expected? Did you just like start talking and be like, hey, this is totally, I'm totally Okay, so I, I initially turned a camera on about six months before that while I was on sabbatical. Um, yeah. I was like, okay, I, I know I need to start creating content. I have all the time in the world because I have, you know, every day off work and I'm, I'm sitting here playing video games, not getting anything done. So I, I was using my iPhone and I, I literally sat down and wrote out like a five page script mm -hmm. and was like trying to do it all in one take and just screwing up over and over and over. And eventually so I was like, screw this. Like, this is atrociously painful. I quit. And I, just, I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to write articles or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I was like, no, okay, I got to get the hang on this video thing. And then I was just like, you know what? I'm going to sit down. I, I make some notes. I made some notes on like the things I wanted to cover. So I wouldn't just go rambling on tangents. But yeah. then I just sat down and just started speaking. And anytime I would screw up, I would just like clap my hands to have a marker where I wanted to uh, to cut. And mm -hmm. again, that came down with knowing I had final cut. And I'm like, man, everyone's YouTube videos. There's no one's doing a seamless take. It's all edited. In fact, that's part of like the charm of most YouTubers is that hyperactive like jump cut editing anyways. So I'm like, mm -hmm. it, 
that getting rid of that perfection mindset was something that really helped me. I was like, I'm just going to get started. I'm going to make a video, put it out. And I don't like give a shit if like five people watch it because the sense of accomplishment of actually doing something and more importantly, finishing it was huge. And that, and that gave me a huge boost of momentum that kind of kept me going. Cause I put out one piece of content and people were like, Hey, what's this? Oh, this is, this is a cool idea. And then it just, the momentum grew. Right. right. Um, but it, it was, yeah, just sit down, sit down, bang it out. And if you don't like it, don't use it. But I mean, chances are it's going to turn out better than you expected for Mitch. In, in my case, I was like, yeah, this is pretty good, I guess. So I'll put it up, see what people think. So you and don't again, like to work it's, it's YouTube. You can always delete it. Yeah. Totally. Uh, I, I work from notes um, because if I, I find if I try and work from a script, I sound unnatural and uh, yeah. it's it doesn't have that hangout kind of vibe to it. It's like, it feels more like, uh, okay. It, it just, if for me, it, it feels awkward for some people. It really works well because they can communicate like a lot of those like essay channels on YouTube where they have a really well done essay on like breaking down a certain thing about film or like, you know, an essay on breaking bad where mm -hmm. they have accompanying visuals. Like it's yeah. to the word, a script, but they know how to deliver it really well. That's just not my jam. Right? Like, so for me, it was using a bit of self-awareness to be like, what is the content? that I can feel comfortable making and more importantly, actually get out the door mm -hmm. and sitting down to do a script is, is clearly drove me into an insane level of rage. Like I wish I had the video <laughs> of me just being like swearing and being like, Oh man, this is, this is like, screw this. Uh, so it's, it's just using a bit of self-awareness because everyone should create content that aligns with like themselves, right? Like I could try and be Casey Neistat or Peter McKinnon, but at the end of the day, that's going to feel awkward and forced just being rather than just being myself. And like, yeah, sure, maybe millions of people aren't going to watch it. But by being myself, I'm going to cultivate a core audience um, of people that genuinely like my content because it's the stuff that I enjoy putting out rather than trying to force it and be someone else. That's awesome. I actually threw away my teleprompter a year ago and I used it, I think, twice. And it was infuriating every yeah. Each one of those, I just, I cannot work with scripts. People like to see like the real people. Like, uh, like that's, I mean, that's part of, uh, Gary V says that all the time. He's like, man, just make like your content doesn't have to be pristine and perfect. He's like, do like a little ghetto Instagram story. And people actually like seeing, um, you know, big celebrities have more down to earth content. Like a lot of the rocks Instagram, it's just him filming as himself. Like, and then you look at say something like that versus maybe, uh, Will Smith's YouTube channel where all of his vlogs are like hyper produced. That's his style, right? The rock is super likable. And, and he, I think he achieves that a lot by being seemingly down to earth, right? Mm -hmm. Here's like a non-perfect selfie. Here's like, he has great pictures that he posts on his Instagram, but then every like five or 10 will just be like some little throwaway, like click. See, I'm a human being too, right? Like it's, people like to see behind that perfect facade for almost everyone because no one is perfect right and a lot of the a lot of times even like looking at other artists work on artstation yeah people usually post their best work but for every project you see that is finished there's probably three or four that is like left on the ground on the cutting room floor that no one will ever see but you don't see people's failures most for the most part um so for me I, I might see if i can dig up some of my older models and actually do a video showing those to be like look this is like where i was at in high school um this, i think I, I have like an old raptor model or something like like a velociraptor mm -hmm. i'll see if i can find it just to show that realness right where it's like man everyone starts from zero everyone starts like not perfect uh and i think that kind of content especially in like the instagram age now where it's it's all like 
here's the perfect booty shot. Here's the perfect flex in the mirror. <laughs> like, people yep. just want to see some actual real stuff every now and then too, right? Yeah. Uh, do you have, um, do you think about duration? Like, do you try to keep them at 30 or an hour or 15? Or do you worry oh, about Oh, man, I'm, I'm terrible at duration. Like, my average mm -hmm. watch time, so if we can go to the, the analytics, so my average mm -hmm. watch time is like six minutes, six and a half minutes or something like that. So that means, yeah. on average, when someone comes to one of my videos, they watch about six minutes. But I know mm -hmm. my hardcore fan base watches every second of it, right? Uh, so I'm not too concerned about that because I want to convey what I'm trying to teach in the shortest amount of time possible. Again, going back to that example of like the two and a half hour unedited tutorial of someone in their basement with an echoing mic, like I never want it to be that. There's like usually three or four things I want to teach in the video. And the raw cuts are probably usually, I don't know, an hour, two hours. And then I try and edit it down. It usually ends up being about half an hour. Uh, it would probably be better. Like this new series, I was like, okay, I'm gonna make it four videos that are like 10, 15 minutes each. That didn't happen. It's like they're all like 15, 20 <laughs> minutes. Um, but I mean, YouTube is great for long form content like that. But I would never, mm -hmm. I, at first I put those videos on Facebook as well as like native Facebook uploads, but no one was watching a, you know, 30 minute video on Facebook. Like I would, I would yeah. take slices of those bigger videos and maybe edit them up into like one or two minute videos for Facebook and then like a 30 <laughs> second thing for Instagram, right? So I, yeah. I try and make micro content out of my, my big content because you know that just gives you more uh things to use on different platforms and that that way you can build your audience across by a bunch of different platforms mm, that makes but sense cause... knowing knowing like people on twitter they're not there to watch like an hour-long tutorial they're yeah. there for like a 30 second if that like uh you know a little clip or a little two seconds sentence it's like oh artists you can do it like that's cool and then on instagram they want to see cool pictures and maybe like a 20 second video and then facebook maybe they'll watch something with captions on you know while they're on the bus for like three minutes so it's knowing how people interact on those platforms has really kind of influenced the content that i put out but that's mm -hmm. why i think my audience is biggest on youtube because i naturally go more towards the long form content and that's yeah. where people go to learn anyways that makes sense yeah it's totally the place to learn yeah um you know it's interesting too because one of my friends marshall vandruff um was talking uh, we were talking a while back and he actually writes scripts for proco um, uh, where they just, the whole thing is written out. He figures the whole thing out. They get it all figured out and they just do that video, you know, yep. that take right there while you're staring at it. So it works for everything, you know, different things work for different people. Yeah. Like for, for me trying to memorize a script, it would destroy my brain, but some people yeah. like that they can just do it. They can read something and be like, boom, deliver it on one take and just, uh, rock it out. But for me, like if I tried to do that, I'd, I'd want to, you know, blow my brains out cause I would just get super frustrated. Uh, I want to get uh, technical here, and if uh, we're looking at, you're seeing the uh, the the yeah the, 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 the artist challenge, right? Yeah, something. Yeah, like exactly. That. That's like the the scene that I made the first set of videos uh, for. Great. So when I'm looking at this, all right, and th th this is one of the things that's really hard, I think, for environment artists. Like I feel for environment artists, you know, because at, at my heart, I'm a character guy, and you know, I studied yep. anatomy, and you know, and and I I understand the the lay of the land there. But environment arts is so huge, so massive. Um, and so if I'm looking at this, and in the back of my mind, as I'm asking this question, I'm thinking of Victor Omen, you know. You know, Victor. oh yeah, um, <laughs> everybody knows Victor. He's awesome. Yeah. So uh, he was just in on the podcast last uh, last week, and we oh, were sick. talking about his. Um, uh, I called it his desert storm, <laughs> but you know, he's <laughs> that uh, that one scene, and um, 
uh, oh, the, the Counter-Strike scene. Strike? Counter-Strike uh, Yeah, D-Dust, yeah. There you go. So yep. I'm looking at that. I'm looking at his you know, bathroom scene. I'm looking at what you got here. And I know that there are environment artists out there that are hustling to create every crack, every piece of this. And, and the question I really would love for you to answer for my, for my environment guys and, and gals is where are they wasting their time? Like, what is it that they might be thinking they need to do that is just a, it's a waste of their life and they need to stop doing it? Yeah. So like one of my biggest points when dealing with environments is as much as you can look at the macro. So like, if you look at this screenshot, I'm not like sitting there focusing on adding little tiny drips on those little stone statues with like the square hole on the side, like underneath that rim and like hand painting, like little edge scratches and stuff. I just literally threw a, a, a stone smart material on that, uh, added like a grunge layer and with a smart mask and was like, that's pretty much good enough. Like if, if you look at that image and squint your eyes, you're never going to see any of that detail, right? I always I have the analogy of like the person that's modeling a trash can and then like say there's a bunch of bolts along the, the base of it. They're hand rotating every bolt to be at a slightly different 15 degree angle and like uh, slightly changing everything up. I'm like in, in, in uh, say you're playing Call of Duty, when is the last time, unless you're an environment artist, when is the last time you ever stopped <laughs> to look at the bolts on like a wall panel? It's like you're too busy running around blasting. You just want the, the all the materials, they look great. Everything looks awesome in motion. Um, that's usually why I build my scenes with the third person blueprint uh, in mm -hmm. inside of Unreal, because then I can just run around and I can actually have the camera moving all the time and be like, okay, is this feeling good? Do things feel like they have weight? Does, I'm not, I don't get stuck in the tiny little details. Like you can go back and polish afterwards, but a lot of the times, like when I was building the scene, I would get things to the, like the minimum level of quality using like smart materials, just throw them on, throw on a couple smart masks. I'm not sitting there hand painting the edge where like if I wanted to polish it after the entire scene has been assembled, absolutely go back and do that. But like if you're spending all of your time on, on props at the beginning when you have an entire scene to do, like it's easy to mismanage your time, right? Like so say I spent, like I built those little like stone lantern things in maybe mm -hmm. a, a few hours, right? So it's, it, I treated that like a, if I treated that like a hero prop and spent like three days on that, I would have never finished this art station challenge, especially because mm -hmm. I knew I had to spend time creating videos and editing, right? So I was like, how can I efficiently, uh, that's why I kept my scene small, first of all, uh, but with a bunch of reused assets. And that's a big tip I have for aspiring environment artists is like, do the most you can with the least amount of, of possible, uh, if that makes sense. So like everything was modular. I really, if you scroll down all the way to the bottom, I think uh, there's a shot of all of the assets I used to build that screen. Uh, so it's one, yeah, I think it's at the very bottom. So that's those are literally the entire assets that I made for that entire scene. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's and even a lot of those are just like reduplicated pieces of each other. Um, so, I mean, it's working smarter, not harder, right? But really, I find getting lost in the tiny details at first is where so many people lose their time. They worry about like, when the player walks up to this wall, are they going to see this slightly different crack? Are they going to notice it's the same crack as that pillar over there? It's like no one is ever going to think about that. So just have one really good-looking pillar, uh, get it in as fast as possible, and work at the, uh, the, the macro level, and then it'll quickly become apparent what needs polish because something will stand out as like not 
looking as good as everything else. Or, uh, you know, also a lot of the time, once lighting gets in there, maybe a bunch of the assets that you spent all your time doing are now completely in shadow, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's why I, I always recommend working in phases, like block it out, add a first pass lighting, uh, work on your largest assets that take up the most screen space first. Um, I know for a lot of the time, that's like structural geometry, which tends to be fairly simple and not the most exciting stuff to make. Like one of the biggest mistakes I always see students doing is they'll show a concept. They're like, I'm making this concept of this dope, like sci-fi alley or a cyberpunk alley. And they'll be like, I'm working on the dumpster first. And I'm just like, oh man, like <laughs> block in your scene, like get the buildings in place with like first pass yeah. textures. Uh, and then like proxy out all of your props, but because uh, mm -hmm. everyone wants to get to like the good looking stuff first, right? Where it's like, I want to do all the grunge on that dumpster. And I mean, that that's great, but uh, that's the quickest way to lose steam because you'll spend seven days on that dumpster and then you'll put it in your scene and you'll zoom out and you'll see everything else left to do. And it'll just be like, oh my God, this is, this is going to take me like seven months to finish this entire scene. Versus mm -hmm. like doing a quick pass on all the large forms first, which gives you the biggest bang for your buck. And then you're like, wow, 80% of the screen is already filled with art. Now I can spend time making my props uh, and I can actually cut props. If I, if I want to finish the scene faster, I can maybe cut that second variation of that wood palette. Like it just by working from big to small, it allows you to um, get your scene to an alpha state where you can you know, walk away as quickly as possible. Because like a lot of the times during a game art, uh, production, they'll give you an area to work on and you'll have a set time limit to work on it, right? So if mm -hmm. I focus on one little corner, adding all of this detail, uh, placing all these props and stuff uh, for like two weeks and I had three weeks to do like a two city block kind of space of the game, I'm going to, the rest of the uh, area isn't going to look as good if, if, if I can even finish it, right? And that's where juniors kind of mismanage their time and uh, a senior artist will probably have to get put on that area to help them out. Uh, that's that's natural. It happens and like no one's going to fire you for that or anything like that. But um, it's just learning where to put your priorities uh, on what has the biggest visual impact. Hmm. Uh, some of that, I think, gets right up to the question Sari had. And um, Sari was asking, does size matter? <laughs> when, when creating an environment uh she says she sees these grand environments she gets intimidated and she's worries that you know small environments that she makes you know aren't going to be good enough uh absolutely not um i would say if you're starting out it's better to start small um i'm gonna pull up art station here and i'll i'll send you i'll, I'll tell you some or i'll, I'll post a, a link uh, yeah i'll post a link um because i've seen a bunch of like little uh, scenes that are like literally the uh, two corners of a building with like a little piece of sidewalk that are awesome. It's clearly manageable to be to be done. Uh, and if you're intimidated by a massive scene, start small because it's the quality we want to see, right? Like if you can make one really good looking building, chances are you can make 10 really good looking buildings. But yeah. trying to do like an entire open world city uh, right off the bat is going to it's going to burn you out and um, going to be really intimidating. So I'll post a couple links here. Uh, I always I always add like this uh, teaching examples uh, anytime I see because I've I've saved examples of things just like that because I, I always want to tell students um like you can get a lot done uh, where are we here so I'll post something if you want to open them up so they're in the the video it'd probably mm -hmm. be good but uh, like something like that or. Here's a, a really cool little scene that I just saw on 
art station the other day. I mean, these are all, it's, it's a highly detailed, small little scene. Like, the, And then this hallway one, it's like a couple materials, but the lighting's nice. Uh, it clearly it looks super realistic. And like, I was like, wow, this is awesome. Like it clearly shows if someone wants to do like, you know, uh, would want to work on something like Mirror's Edge or, you know, even like The Last of Us or something like that. They can clearly create realistic feeling spaces. And mm -hmm. that would lead me uh, to looking further into their portfolio. Um, because if you're doing a massive scene, the quality might not be there. And uh, the most important thing to me is like, is it a visually impressive image, right? And so this yeah. is like, even though it's a hallway or a little corner like this, if you can uh, do okay. that to a high level of quality, like this, to me, this is perfect. Uh, like even without the scooter, that would be a great environment art portfolio. And it's totally manageable and more importantly, something you can finish, which is going to give you the the confidence boost and and um, not only the confidence in your abilities, but also uh, increase your self-esteem because and your the way that you have that view of yourself because like, yes, I finished things. Uh, so I would say that's so important is to to stay small right in the beginning and actually finish things because that'll give you that momentum. And then you can tackle for your next scene, maybe something bigger, maybe something bigger after that. But those are all great examples of, you know, just a little corner that looks just awesome. And it tells me everything I need to know about that artist's ability because it just looks great. Um, you've mentioned mindset a couple of times. Can you talk to me a little bit about confidence as an artist and what that means to you? Yeah, like, I mean, Anytime you tackle a, pro a project, you're probably going to feel intimidated uh, mm -hmm. right off the bat. There's probably going to be a mix of, mixture of excitement and intimidation, but probably because for a lot of students, they've never um, had to tackle something, either as a, you know, a different subject matter, like something maybe they've just been doing like grungy alleyways and they now want to try something sci-fi. So it's going to be exciting but intimidating, right? You know, um, um, sorry to interrupt. My my daughter has a phrase for that that her teacher taught her that I think the world needs to know. She calls it nervous sighted. Nervous sighted. That's that's a perfect way of putting it. Excited I mean, and nervous. And it the best thing about that is the nervous part means you're gonna be learning things, which is mm -hmm. probably the whole point of doing an exercise in a project. Because when you're first learning, those projects aren't probably going to be the projects that get you a job like to be completely honest so it's i would focus more on learning and developing your abilities and like if you can be satisfied with that for your first few projects rather than being like this has to be a portfolio piece you're gonna not beat up on yourself as much because you're gonna be happy that you've learned some new things yeah uh and that's that's like the biggest win of all like for me anytime i for those uh lighting things in my portfolio it's like i wanted to boost my lighting skills um to a, to a, a higher level right i wanted to um, doing like an overcast Last of Us style scene. I was like, oh, how do I do that? So for me, it was more the end result. Yeah, it looks nice, um, notably because it was a, a scene I bought off the marketplace that already looked good. But like by by focusing on learning the skills, um, that gave me the confidence boost in my lighting abilities because I did all of those right before uh, I got my job as a, being a dedicated lighting artist at WB. So I was like, I want to really beef up those lighting muscles, right? Because even after doing this for like 12 years, there's always that voice in the back of your mind being like, do you really know what you're doing? And some people call that imposter syndrome. So for mm -hmm. me, I was always, I was still like, man, am I going to be able to like stack up against these badass uh, like other three or four other lighters at, at WB that have been just doing lighting, focus on it full time for like the last, you know, eight years or whatever. So there's a, even for me, there's like that little confidence voice in your head that's like, ah, do you even know what you're doing? And I was like, I'm just going to do these exercises so I feel comfortable with the tools because I knew mm -hmm. the studio uses Unreal. I wanted to be 
comfortable with the, the entire lighting tool set and just really like pump those muscles. And I was like, hey, the, the end result is pretty good. I'll post it on ArtStation. But it was never my intention from the start to post it on ArtStation to get likes and like attention and stuff like that. I was just like, if it turns out great, that's good. If it turns out bad, no one's ever going to see it. Uh, and that then I'll have maybe even questioning my ability even more. But uh, no, I was like, by going through the process and just trusting in the process of like, it's going to take me a few revisions to figure out what I need to learn, uh, what I need to improve, and just embrace that. Be like, I don't know everything, so I'm going to just dive in, get my hands dirty. And by doing that, actually getting started, your confidence will go up. Because it's sitting there and thinking about doing things is when a lot of the negativity will sl slip in. You're like, well, I could try this, but uh, I don't know. It might suck, so I'm not even going to get started. But once mm -hmm. you get started, you start to build that momentum. There's that famous image of like, it's like a sine wave where it's like, I love my art, I hate my art, I love my art, I hate my art. Uh, and, and then at the end of a project, you're like, yay, it's done, right? So it ends on an upward note, hopefully. Uh, but it, it's always like that. For every artist, it's like, I love it, I hate it, this sucks. Oh, actually, there, I see something promising here. I'm going to focus on improving that. Oh, wow, it's actually turning out cool. Uh, that's just part of the artistic process, to be honest. Like, and if it was smooth sailing right off the bat, it would just, it would be boring. It would be like data entry, like time to make some pipes, time to make some bricks. Like I know it's going to turn out perfect and I've done this a thousand times. Like it's, that's when people end up getting burnt out. Like I remember stories from people that used to be character artists at like uh, EA Vancouver and like not to put them on blast or anything like that, but they're like, I literally sculpt hands all day. Not even characters, just hands. And oh, like, wow. they're like, after a couple of years of doing that, they're like, I'm going to go get a job at a studio where I'm creating full characters because I need that, uh, that sense of excitement and like mm -hmm. doing things I'm not comfortable with. Like the more you stay in your comfort zone, the more you'll eventually lose, I find. It's like, you know, if you get super comfortable in a relationship and you kind of just stop caring, chances are that relationship isn't going to be great. Uh, if you're just stagnating and doing like, you know, I'm, I'm totally comfortable drawing anime and that's all I'm going to ever do. And I'm not going to attempt anything else because this is my comfort zone. Like you're not going to grow as an artist. So if you're outside of your comfort zone, you're growing, embrace that feeling of nervousness. And the more you do it, the more confidence you will have because you'll be able to look back at all of your previous projects and be like, oh yeah, I finished that one. I finished that one. I finished that one. And it's just references, experiences that boost your confidence in the long run. So it's, like I said, it's like a muscle. The more you pump it, the, the more you can rely on it and the easier it is to start your next project with more excitement and less nervousness. Awesome. Thank you. I got, I, I know I'm taking up a ton of your time. So thank you. I got two more questions for you. No worries. Yeah. Keep, shoot. Okay. So this comes from Edison. So we'll get a technical question. Edison's asking about UE for layered materials is, is layered materials used all the time on final assets for shipping the game because portfolio materials can be expensive. And uh, he's looking at how to optimize and, and kind of match his portfolio with, um, with workflows. With what is actually produced in the studios, yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of assets these days, yeah, they, they, they'll have like vertex blending on them. Like a lot of uh, modular pieces for structural meshes um, mm -hmm. like will have like a metal with a blendable rust that you can just scatter on on the surface or mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, bricks with you can blend in water or concrete and stuff like that. Um, some smaller props you probably get away with like a non-layered material like looking at this image on screen like those terracotta pots could probably just be a tiling flat terracotta texture on top of a very basic model like that's uh probably a prop that i wouldn't spend too much time on doing mm -hmm. right like it's it's all about prioritizing and what you can get away with that's what i what i always say is like what can i get away with um because a lot of the times you don't need to 
take the hero asset workflow for everything. So say I was creating like a watering can or a, uh, I don't know, like, a, yeah, like say I was creating a, a watering can. I could probably just make a very basic watering can shaped model, throw like an aluminum tiling texture on it. Uh, that would probably be fine. If it needed to be slightly more quality, I could do an aluminum with a rust vertex blend on it. And then if it needed to be like the character, it was a, it was a first person game and the character was going to pick it up. Uh, then maybe I would give it a full high poly and like substance painter texture job. Mm-hmm. So it comes down to it. Also, if your boss comes to you and says you have, you know, half a day to do this watering can, well, that's going to impact how you make that mesh. Right. Cause a lot of the times good enough is good enough. Like, like I said, most people aren't paying attention to the tiny details and you can use a couple basic tiling materials uh, to really create a wide variety of props. Like I think Alien Isolation did that really, really well. A lot of their materials on almost all their assets were like basic tiling plastics, like with no added detail. And then they would add like deferred decals over on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but in your portfolio, um, yeah, just figure out what's going to take you to invest the time. Invest your time on the things that are really going to wow people. Uh, and that's that's actually going to communicate to studios that you're also ready for the job too, because if I look and see all of these little tiny hero assets, yeah, it's going to be impressive. But I'm like, how long did it take this person to do the scene? If we hire them and they get assigned like three or four assets to do, are they just going to go to their desk and start high poly modeling everything? I'm like, oh man, that's going to be uh, a rude awakening for them when they, they're like, just slap a, a tiling wood texture on that mm-hmm. like window frame. And they're like, what? We're not high poly and sculpting the entire window frame? Mm-hmm. So just just kind of like invest your time in, in the wow stuff and... Uh, I, I usually like what I said in, in the past is like, I'll do a very first pass on all my assets, put it in the engine and be like, what stands out as looking terrible <laughs> and then do a, another pass on that. Right. So like this, this Tori gate, uh, if you go back to the, the Japan scene, um, the Tori gate, I did a high poly sculpt for, uh, you know, painted the, did the, all the peeling wood and stuff in substance painter, um, the metal accents and stuff like that. So it's like, Oh, it's going to be a big central part of the scene. Uh, mm-hmm. Those floor bricks, it's literally just a tiling moss texture, like all the, the, the wonky floor tiles. It's like a, a super quick sculpted uh, brick block and then just tiling uh, stone and and um, moss textures on top of that. So it, I was just like, how much of these going to be seen? Probably not uh, the focus of the person that's looking at the scene's attention, right? Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, now the uh, the next question is... Okay, I want to talk about proceduralism and um, the the kind of subtext here is that from my perspective, environment arts is probably one of the most dynamic areas in game arts right now. I mean, I'm sure somebody might see something else who's neck deep in the dev side of it. Um, But environment arts is like, I mean, character arts was revolutionized with ZBrush. Hasn't, I don't know much that's changed outside of some, some PBR and substance, but the, but environments is like wildly changed with entire new jobs. Like surfacing artist is not a job they have. Yeah, it's the scope of games has gotten so intense, right? Like every generation, like it just gets more and more complex. Like one of the things I keep saying is uh, right now, technical lighting artist isn't that Mm -hmm. big of a role, but next gen, you're going to see that because the lighting and uh, overall like rendering of of the final image in a game is going to become on the level that like pretty much uh, feature film has now like if you look at uh, the love death and robots like some of those pre-rendered videos like they look so amazing so they had probably technical lighting artists being like here's how you manage your exposure here's how uh, the exact amount of lumens this light should be to to look correct like 
nowadays it's still pretty loosey-goosey with like uh, a lot of lighting where it's like you know add the lights make sure they're a nice looking color and, and all that but as the rendering improves they're gonna have you need a lot more of the technical skills uh, so you're gonna have more technically inclined artists and then more art artists that uh, the the technically inclined people are gonna be like lassoing and trying to, to rein in be like you have to use some like again the rules of the matrix right play within the matrix at least a little bit so we're not mm -hmm. the game's not running at like four frames a second but I mean tools are constantly evolving in terms of proceduralism and at this point like everyone's like oh are the tools is AI gonna take our job and I'm, I'm like no like did uh, texture artists go obsolete when substance painter became around like no it's just another tool that allows you to do your job more efficiently and the more efficiently you can do your job the less chance you're gonna have of work having to work crunch and like work insane hours because uh, the scope of your work is is probably going to be more focused in the long run, right? Like you're going to be more focused in on doing a smaller set of uh, things that you really can work on. Because back in the day, like an environment artist on PS2 would do the lighting, they would do the texturing, they would uh, build the entire, because you could build an entire PS2 level in a couple of days, the geometry was so simple, right? So nowadays people are just kind of more and more specialized, especially at large AAA studios. Uh, at smaller studios, people are going to need to be more generalist and still have a wider skill set, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, but even then, like even nowadays, like I know small studios that still have dedicated lighting artists now, because just in order to have that really appealing final image, you need someone that really knows what they're doing uh, to complement the technical side of advancements in the industry. You know, it's interesting that you say it won't take the jobs because I agree. You know, it didn't it substance didn't. But the flip side of that is that some people didn't adapt. Oh, absolutely. I saw that too. And every time there's a generation change, uh, people leave the industry. It's either because they're tired of doing doing what they're doing and they don't want mm -hmm. to adapt or they just get stuck in their ways. And then, yeah, maybe they get fired. But like, I remember when uh, the, the generation jump between, say, PS2 and PS3, there was a lot of people that just refused to learn high poly modeling or uh, how normal, map work, normal maps worked. They were comfortable like hand painting all their textures uh, or you just, you know, you'll not not working with current technology and they're like no i this is how i do it and they're like even up until recently i would still see artists at some studios being like i do all my textures in photoshop because i just don't want to learn substance it's like okay well everyone in the industry is going this way and you're just like sitting there with your your heels in the mud being like no i'm not going down that path like and it kind of shows that person's not willing to adapt and they're probably you know not the best asset to have on a team if someone's like really stuck in their ways and everyone's being like this is how we're doing it for this project and that person's like no i'm using my workflow i don't want to this i've been doing it like this for 10 years i know best it's like probably not the best uh setups for success right yeah that makes sense all right one last question um guys if you've got anything make sure you, you get that out now but i think i've gone through everybody's questions that's here with me live uh, Sari says you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Fair Absolutely. Um, this is a, a dilemma or it's, it's something that comes up a lot. So in terms of your career, uh, do you think it was luck or talent or hard work? Uh, probably mostly hard work. Um, just putting in the grind to develop my skills and, you know, putting art out there for people to rip apart and, uh, learning with every project that I've done. I mean, there, there is always that facet of luck for, for me getting my first job. Like I posted it, uh, it was like this concrete 
typical like you know gears of war style concrete barrier all shot up sculpted in zbrush i posted it on like five different forums and uh on i think it was cg chat which i very rarely went to someone saw it and sent me a, a, a dm being like hey uh i really like your work uh we would be interested in bringing you in for an interview um and that's actually how i ended up getting my first job and i, I made a video on that whole thing uh it's on my youtube channel but uh so yeah, there is the luck of of putting it out on five different forums and having the right person see it. But like, the more you increase your output, chances are the better your luck will become. It's like that quote of like, it's funny. The harder I work, the luckier I get. And, and then, especially nowadays with ArtStation, if you're a student and you start building your ArtStation following from day one, like just putting out work, you know, slowly you're gonna slowly start to accumulate followers. When you're finally like four or five years down the road, posting all of your final graduation portfolio and stuff like that, uh, all of those people that have been following you for a while, all that engagement is going to drive your work up through the algorithm and more people are going to see it. And the more eyeballs on your work, like it's just more swings at bat, right? So like if 10,000 people see your work and there's a, say like a 1% conversion rate or something like that, which, you know, out of every thousand people that see your work, maybe you'll get like one job offer if your work is like, and getting enough attention, right? So it's like attention uh, plus exposure is like opportunity. So you can have all the attention on the in the world, like from a few people on your your art. But if it doesn't have a wide enough exposure to uh, the general, you know, internet, chances are your opportunities are going to be limited. So that's why having your work be at a really high level will get it the attention, and then using social platforms will give it the exposure which will lead to opportunities. So it's it's kind of, that's like my formula for success nowadays and it's it's having a long-term view of building up your personal brand and audience on all those platforms. Like it's not going to happen overnight, so it's better to get started now because you know, 6 years down the road, your future you will probably thank you. I love that. That um I think that's like what you said right there is um there's a lot there and one of the things that I think that's really important is you're lo that you're looking at it more from like a, I don't know if this is the accurate way to say that, but it, it's more of a business perspective, right? Like a business, an artist will look and they'll be like, I got to be good enough. I got to work on X, Y, Z. A businessman knows yeah. there's a market for anything. And what you need, if you're going to run a business, you need traffic and you need a conversion mechanism. And no matter what, you're going to get something. It's just, yeah. you might and, want and more. Like the higher quality of your product, which is your skill set, yeah. uh, the, the the more traffic and attention you'll get over over time, right? Because yeah, people love to share things that are really inspiring, and that just increases the exposure. Like the whole internet has totally changed the game too, especially with things like ArtStation and Instagram. Like those didn't exist when I was first starting out. I was yeah. just posting my work on random forums and and hoping people would come by. And that's why I always tell people, please, for the love of God, use ArtStation for your portfolio because you're going to get so much organic traffic viewing your work that you don't even know about. While you're sleeping, people are looking at your work. Potential employers are looking at your work. If you have like, if I had just like timsimpson.com and I had like a, a Wix portfolio, like the chances of people coming across that organically are pretty mm -hmm. much nothing. And then when I would post a new, a new uh, artwork, no one would see it. So like I would have to actually spend all that time and effort to go to like a hundred different forums, post my custom link to my custom website, and it would just eat up all of my time. So like by having these platforms where artists and hiring managers live, like Instagram, ArtStation, Behance, like put your work on there. So while you're sleeping, your work is literally giving you that like return on investment potentially. <laughs>
if yeah. you really want to break it down to like a, a business type of mindset. But I mean, at the end of the day, you are a business. Your skills are going to give you an income to pay your bills, right? The skills pay the bills. That's that's the the saying that everyone always says. So, skills pay the bills. Yep. Uh, Michael's asking about the six years. It took you six years. Uh, do you think it's common for one to spend this amount of time? And in the subtext that I hear Michael um, asking is, "Oh my God, that's a long time." This is scary. Uh, so for me, like the first, the, I wouldn't say six years. Like pedal to the metal, like making yeah. eight hours of art a day. Like I, I would literally do the work in class, which was like, I don't know, an hour and a half class, three or four times a week for the first couple of years, uh, and then. As my, uh, I think my last year of high school, I took two, two, like two slots of that class. I, I somehow managed to finagle that because I was like, I want to do this for half my day every day at school. Um, so then it was like maybe you know four hours a day for a few times a week. Uh, but then the, really the like the last after I graduated, uh, I was I think 17, and then from 17 um, to 19, I you know really ramped up my output so i went mm -hmm. from working maybe like 20 hours a week on my artwork to up to 30 and then by the time i was 19 i was probably doing because i i moved back home into my parents basement uh so i could focus on my art and i was doing you know like uh maybe like 40 hours a week of art uh mm -hmm. as you know consistently as i could so i wouldn't say it's six years pedal to the metal like i could i think someone could become industry ready in three maybe maybe two years if they're like a, a genius plugged into the matrix but i mean having that that long-term perspective on it yeah for most people it's going to take them three four maybe five years uh depending on the quality of their education but again um i didn't have a lot of the resources that are out there now to shortcut my learning curve right so like i literally just had access to uh well i think nomen was big at the time like i could order nomen dvds and and yeah. or like books um, and like YouTube wasn't, didn't have a huge community or anything like that. So it's a trade-off, right? Like the skills have gone up and like the technical abilities you need to get into the industry have gone up, but also the resources to help you get there are like vastly improved, right? Like exactly like podcasts like this, like training courses that are out there and the, there's just so much more information. Um, but it, it is going to take a few years of, of dedicated output to get your skills to that high level. Awesome. Man, Tim, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for taking oh, the time. Oh, it's been great, man. All I right, really guys. That. Yeah, you guys know where to find them. ArtStation forward slash Pixel Masher, Tim Simpson. You can get to the About and you get to the Polygon Academy. There, you Google it, you'll find it. Yeah, if you just search um, up Polygon Academy on YouTube, you'll find all the tutorials and videos. That's my, my main go-to spot, so. Awesome. All right, man, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate you having me on. Okay, take care. Cheers. Thanks, guys. All right. Cheers. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. It really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.